Greetings and welcome. My name is James White, and we have been taking time to look at the inspiration of the Bible, the consistency of the Bible, the history of the Bible. Many Christians wonder, why is it that there are so many different interpretations of the Bible? Is every interpretation equal to every other interpretation? Why is it that people can look at the same text and come to different conclusions as to what it says? Today I'd like to consider how we as believers have a, a duty, and I truly do believe a duty before God, to handle the text of the Word of God in the proper fashion. You see, if we truly believe that this is the Word of God, that this is God speaking to us, then the Christian heart will want to hear exactly what God has to say. The Christian heart will not wish to gag God, to put tape over God's mouth so that all we hear is ourselves. The Christian will not want to turn the Bible into a wish book where I just project my desires and my thoughts into it and then lo and behold, there it is. It's, it's in Scripture. No, we want the Scriptures to function the way they, they describe themselves. They describe themselves as, as the mirror. And remember the Apostle James talks about the person, the foolish person who looks in a mirror and as soon as he walks away, he forgets what he looked like. He, forget, he forgot what kind of a person he was. We're not to be that way. We're not to be those who look into the Scriptures and then walk away and, and forget what we've seen. And if we don't handle the text of the Bible correctly, then we will not discern what the original authors themselves wanted us to understand and wanted to say. It is following these rules that allows us to do what's called exegesis. Exegesis is reading out of the text the original meaning that the author intended to put there. That's the opposite of eisegesis, where we read into the text a meaning that would have been foreign to the original author. Let me give you an illustration that might, uh, might help some of you, especially who are parents. Sometimes uh, teenage children are experts at engaging in eisegesis in violating the rules of exegesis. For example, you might say to your teenage son or daughter, uh, after you've cleaned up the room and after you've done your homework, then we will go and we will eat dinner together. Somehow, in the process of transmission and interpretation, they miss the cleaning up the room part and the finishing of the homework part, and the only part they hear is food. Let's go to dinner together. Now, we understand sometimes why teenagers do this, but as parents, it's still frustrating when a portion of our message, which we intended to be properly interpreted, isn't interpreted properly at all. In the same way, you might work in a company, and possibly your particular company uh, uses email to communicate between different departments. And so you might have a very important message that you need to communicate to someone else in your company. And so, you carefully write an email, you make sure that you're very clear in what you are requesting and, and telling them what needs to be done, you define all of your terms, and you send this email off. And it's very frustrating, and sometimes you feel somewhat offended and slighted when someone reads your email and it's very clear, all they did was they read the maybe the first two lines, or maybe they only read the conclusion. They didn't read everything you had to say. 
And then, for some reason, they decide to read into what you said all sorts of things that you never intended at all. Now, not only does that cause a real problem in the business place, but it also tends to show that on the part of the person who received the email, there were other things involved, there were other actions going on. They, they, they maybe were assuming you were going to ask for one thing, and you actually asked for something else. Uh, maybe in the past you had asked them for certain things, and they just assumed you were going to be asking the same thing. They had their traditions, which they read into your words, resulting in a misunderstanding. Now, it's bad enough in the business world, but if we believe that God has spoken in His Word, then that can be a really bad thing when it comes to handling the text of Scripture itself. And so there are certain rules for exegesis that we need to follow. And yes, most of these rules are the very same rules that we would use in reading an email sent to us by someone, in reading a book, reading any book of antiquity. Many of the rules are the same. Some differ in the sense that because we believe the Bible is the Word of God, there's going to be some, some consistency issues. Uh, looking at the entirety of what the text says, that would not necessarily be the case when looking at other ancient works. And so these rules help us to avoid reading our thoughts into the Word of God. And there's a great temptation for us to do that. There's a great temptation for us to want to find in the Bible what we want to find in the Bible rather than finding what is truly there which exposes many times our own selfishness or our own rebellion or ways that we have of thinking that are not pleasing in God's sight. And so we sort of skip over those sections or we read those sections out of the Bible by reading our own desires into it. So the rules of exegesis are what allow us to say that we can actually hear God speaking to us when we rightly handle His Word. The first thing we need to recognize is who is the author of the book that we're reading? Now, sometimes we don't know. Some of the historical books in the Old Testament, we don't know who wrote them. And especially for historical works, that's understandable. Uh, uh, there, there may be a number of authors over a period of time recording the history of the people of Israel or the kings of Israel or things like that. That's very common in the ancient world. But in other places, we know exactly who wrote a book. We know that, that Paul writes the epistle to the Romans. And so when we know who the author is, then we know what Paul's background was. We know what languages that he spoke, where he grew up, what his traditions would be, and that helps us tremendously. When, when you write a letter to a loved one and they know you and know who you are, there's much less of an opportunity for them to misread what you are yourself saying because they know who you are. They know what your language is, what your likes and dislikes are, and things like that. So if we know who the author is, it's important for us to keep that in mind. The next thing to remember is the audience. To whom is this particular book written? And again, sometimes that's very easy to discern. When Paul writes to the Romans, well, we know who the Romans were. We know where Rome was. When he writes to the Corinthians, we know where Corinth was. And it is important, especially, for example, in that letter to the Corinthians, uh, to know something about its history. What was the city like at that time in history? Uh, what were some of the major structures there? What was the religious worship in that city like? And so when we know exactly what those, the, the audience is, very important to keep those things in mind. 
but sometimes, again, like an, a historical work, there's not a specific audience in mind. It's more of a general recounting of what God did with the people of Israel. Or sometimes in some of the poetic books, when we go into the Psalter, for example, there may not be a specific audience for a particular psalm, or there may be a very clear audience. Some of the psalms, for example, are for the people of Israel as they were going up to worship the temple in Jerusalem. And so the audience and author, if we know, it's very important to keep those things in mind. Then we have the historical setting. And is that different than audience and author? Well, it can be. Uh, for example, when we look at the New Testament, it's very important to remember that uh, these books are, are all written during the period of time where the Roman Empire was at uh, the height of its power. And therefore, uh, wherever the New Testament went, uh, Rome was already there. And so there were certain uh, political realities involved when we see uh, Paul being uh, uh, beaten. Uh, the fact that he's a Roman citizen comes out and he's released and, and that gives him more places that he can go to preach the gospel. All these things are important when we examine what those particular books written under Roman rule uh, actually uh, say and how they interact with the political realities of the day. Once again, however, sometimes we're not completely certain exactly what the historical setting of a book might be, and that impacts our interpretation as well. Then we have something called lexicography, and that's just simply the recognition that words have meanings. And the Bible was not written in uh, any languages other than Hebrew and Greek with some Aramaic, about 12 chapters worth of Aramaic in the Old Testament. And the words used by the authors have specific meanings. We, are, we must be very, very careful that even though for most of us there is another language that is our mother tongue and that is what we hear the Bible in. We hear it in our language. We memorize it in our language. Very few people uh, are, are fully fluent in, in all the, the ancient languages of the Bible and, and memorizing it in those languages. And so when we hear it in our language, the tendency is to take meanings of those words that are normal for our language and read them into the text of Scripture, even if they would never be a part of the original meanings of those particular words themselves. And so there are some tremendous uh, resources available to us today. In fact, this particular generation of Christians has uh, access through computers and computer technology and, and the Internet to uh, levels of information that previous generations never had concerning the, the linguistic backgrounds of the text and things like that. These are being made available more and more for non-specialists to be able to access this kind of information. The next level of uh, material we need to look at is the grammar, because obviously when you use certain words, they have meaning, but words have meaning in a particular context. And when you place words into a sentence, and you place them in certain forms, you are meaning to communicate something by that grammar. And so, once again, a, a good translation into any other language other than the biblical languages is already going to have taken this into account and translated these things correctly. But again, it is important when we especially want to establish an, an important point of doctrine, for example, to go back to the grammar and make sure that we are understanding what the original author would have intended, not what comes across just in our particular translation or our particular understanding of the text. Now, the next step beyond grammar then is called syntax. 
and that is the relationship of words to one another. Once you've put those words in a certain form, then they begin to form clauses and sentences. And so the syntax can be extremely important. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is when I, when I teach Greek in the more advanced classes, you get to begin to teach the syntax of the language. And in the, in the Greek language, you have something called participles. And participles are extremely expressive in Greek. And they can, they can say so many things. The, the Greeks loved to use participles. Some of the New Testament writers especially love to use participles. And so when you actually dig into that meaning, that's when you really start to, to sense the, the flow of thought of the original author. When you can look at those participles and you can see how they relate to the verbs and things like that and the, the nuances of meaning that are expressed thereby. Uh, for example, uh, one of the most beautiful texts of Scripture is Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the grammar and the syntax in the original Greek language of that verse, what it's saying is that we have been justified as a past action. And because we have been justified, because we have been declared right with God, we now, as a present possession, have peace, true and lasting peace with God, having been justified by faith. Not by what we have done, but by what God has done in Jesus Christ. And you can look at the language and see how Paul expresses this in this scriptural passage with consistency. It is not that we are are trying to become justified, and someday we might have peace. No, what he's saying is, having been justified by faith, past action, something we look back upon, we have true peace, shalom with God. The warfare is ended. Peace with God has been accomplished by what God has done in Jesus Christ. Just one example of the, of the, of the many, many thousands that could be given where sound exegesis helps us to understand the gospel with clarity. Now, of course, uh, many people immediately raise uh, the issue of textual issues. Textual issues. What does that mean? Well, uh, you may have a copy of the Bible, for example, and you may see a little, a little footnote at the bottom where it says, some manuscripts say this. And a lot of Christians are bothered by that. And it's certainly understandable. I remember the first time that I opened up a critical edition of the Greek New Testament in Greek class and Bible college, and I looked down at these notes at the bottom of the page, and I, I said to the teacher, what's this stuff down here at the bottom of the page? And he said, well, that's where the Greek manuscripts uh, have different readings. I didn't like that. And so I started digging into it, and, and then we will be discussing uh, why it is that there are differences in some of the Greek manuscripts, and yet how actually how incredibly pure the New Testament text has come down to us, and in fact, how by having the New Testament manuscripts, New Testament documents, literally explode across the Roman Empire, distributed all over the place. God actually preserved His Word from anyone who would want to destroy it or to corrupt it. That's something we'll be talking about in a, in a future episode. But for now, we recognize that there are textual issues, and that means that sometimes some translations are derived from one kind of Greek text and another from another kind of Greek text. Now, don't get me wrong. These Greek texts, if we apply the same rules of exegesis interpretation, we'll all say the same thing. 
because in the vast majority of instances, in 99% of the instances, all those manuscripts are saying the exact same thing. The differences are very small, but they can be significant in a given text. And so sometimes we need to realize that if we're using one translation, that another translation over here is based on a slightly different Greek text, and that might impact a particular passage that we are studying, and, and we need to be aware of that. So that's textual issues. We also need to recognize the form of literature. What do I mean by that? Well, there's all sorts of different kinds of literature in the Bible. Well, I thought the Bible was one book. No, it's a book made up of many kinds of literature. For example, the Psalter is poetry primarily. Uh, we have apocalyptic literature in books like Ezekiel, Daniel, the book of Revelation, Matthew chapter 24. We have uh, parables in the teachings of Jesus. We have history in 1st and 2nd Kings, Chronicles, and things like that. Uh, we have didactic teaching. We have epistles from the Apostle Paul. There's all sorts of different kinds of literature. And you're not going to interpret all those different kinds of literature in the same way. You're not going to take the rules of interpreting a historical text about the kings of Israel, for example, and then use those same types of, 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 of interpretation when you start talking about apocalyptic literature where you're talking about a beast coming out of the sea that has seven heads, which meant, is meant to represent seven nations. You have to recognize the kind of literature that you're actually reading to be able to interpret it properly. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been convinced that, ah, that's, that's, not, that's not spiritual. Uh, you, just, you just pray to the Holy Spirit and get an interpretation. Wait a minute. The Holy Spirit's the one who gave us the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit's not going to give one person one interpretation, one person another interpretation, as if this is theological silly putty, something we can just simply take apart and put back together again any way we want. This is His Word. If we want to hear what He has said, then we need to recognize that He has expressed Himself using different kinds of literary devices and forms. And we need to be careful when we handle those things. Now, of course, the most important element of any meaningful interpretation of anything, I don't care what the book is, but certainly in the case of the Bible, is that word context. Context, context, context. Real estate agents say location, location, location. Well, for reading the Bible, it's context, context, context. 95% of all the objections that people have against the teaching of Scripture anywhere is because they're not examining the original context. Now, there's different levels of context, obviously. You have the immediate context, which would involve uh, maybe just a certain phrase uh, or a sentence, realizing, for example, in Greek, there are some sentences that go on for uh, numbers of verses. Uh, but you have the immediate context, and so you have to define your words in light of the usage right there, the grammar, the syntax, and things like that. But then beyond that immediate context, then you have a, a paragraph, you have the entire document. Some documents are shorter or longer than others, obviously. For example, Romans gives you more of a context than Philemon does. Uh, but you look at what the meaning of a particular word is or a phrase is or a sentence is within the document because that might be a particular part of the emphasis of that particular writing. Uh, but then you also have the context of the author himself. Uh, sometimes you have enough writing from a particular biblical author that you can establish uh, a context for him. Paul, for example, uh, you have Luke's context in Luke and Acts. 
Uh, you have a, a little bit with Peter, uh, for example, John, his gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. And so you can look at those wider contexts, and then you can see, of course, the context of the New Testament, the context of the Old Testament, and then the whole context of the Bible itself. Context is the key. No meaning, uh, no word has any meaning outside of the context in which it is used. Context will so often determine exactly what it is that we are saying. When we write to loved ones, if we're writing a, a happy, upbeat letter, no one's going to read something negative and horrible into that without, without violating our meaning. In the same way, when we read the Bible, we have to know what the context is. You got to realize, chapters and verses did not exist in the original text of the Bible. The original text of the Bible did not have chapter and verse divisions. And while chapters and verses are helpful to us to find texts very quickly, in some ways they've been rather negative. What I mean by that is we tend, for example, to memorize a particular verse. And that makes sense. There's, there, we can't memorize all of Matthew, for example. Uh, but that also sometimes allows us to isolate that text from what's around it. If you are going to, for example, memorize a text of Scripture, and I strongly encourage you to do so, you should always make sure that you're familiar with what is around that particular context, that particular word. What's the context? What's the flow of thought at that point? Because if you don't do that, then you're in grave danger of taking that out and filling it with meaning that in its original context it simply didn't have. This is the greatest problem that people have in accurately handling the Word of God is making sure that they have the proper context and they know what it is. I believe Christians should be more than willing to spend uh, the time that it takes to become so conversant with the Word of God, so familiar with the Word of God, that we know what the flow of thought is. Especially in the major books we spend so much time in. We spend time in, in the Gospels. And I, you know, we, we spend time learning computer programs and, and, and you may have your favorite sports teams and stuff and you might memorize all sorts of things about the statistics of that sports team. Here we're talking about the eternal Word of God. We're talking about something that has eternal impact in our lives and yet how much do we really know about it? How much time do we spend learning such things as the outlines of the major books, the flow of thought that leads into the key text that that introduce the fact that uh, God has revealed Himself as uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, and uh, the, the resurrection of Christ and the atonement of Christ and, and, and what it means to be justified, the difference between justification and sanctification. These are vitally important things. It's not the Bible doesn't give us enough information, but we need to take the time to follow the context and learn what the, the real meaning of the text is. And so these are just certain rules of how to do exegesis. That is, to make sure that what I'm say, seeing in the Bible, I'm drawing out of the Bible. I'm not just taking something out here and forcing it into the text of Scripture. This is eisegesis, and that means it's not the Word of God any longer because I'm taking my words and forcing them into the text. What we want is exegesis, so that the meaning is flowing from the text to us. That way, we can know for certainty that 
we are listening to what God is saying rather than us forcing God to, in essence, speak in our language and say what we want him to hear. Now, in our next study, we'll ask the question, how do we know that this is what God would have us to have? What is the can of Scripture? That's what we'll look at next. Thank you.